Exit for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more podcasts about movies, nostalgia, and pop culture, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. I hope that you Hey everybody, and welcome back to Uncanny X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise, starting with Giant Size X-Men number one, and make our way forward through the misadventures of Marvel's Merry Mutants. Today is not so merry, in fact, this is quite the misadventure. We find ourselves smack dab in the middle of the Dark Phoenix saga. I'm your host, Nico. I'm Jonah. I'm Kyle. And I'm Kevo. We've assembled the entire X's for Podcast team so we could talk about this momentous and historic change in the Marvel Universe. Jonah, when we started this project... We were looking at the Uncanny X-Men, and I promised you, we would get to stories that would blow your mind. We've had this amazing run. We had Arcade, followed by Proteus, and now we're here in the Dark Phoenix Saga. We finally met Dazzler, Emma Frost, Kitty Pride. It's been nonstop. Where are you as a new fan? This story just hit me right in the gut. It was just unfortunate event after unfortunate event, and I think it was told so well. I really felt reading these issues, the pain these characters went through, the events that we're going to talk about and what transpired. It was so beautifully sad. I was just left, wow, they actually wrote that. Beautifully sad. I feel like you summed it up there. The Dark Phoenix Saga reads like an Adele album. Kyle, there was no way that we could possibly do this arc without you, knowing that Beast shows up and Angel shows up, knowing that you're going to be covering Dazzler. We needed to have you here and covering this pivotal moment because up until now, Angel's kind of been like a giant dick bag. And when Kevin and I were discussing this arc, hello, Gene, let's make out right now. And I was like, yes, let me cuck you right in front of your husband. Like, super intense sexual moment immediately at the top of this issue, which after everything that's been going on was a lot to take in. Super inappropriate. So Kyle, this is just like a totally different angel. How does you, the champion of the champions, feel coming into this arc? Um, jeez. <laughs> I honestly interpreted his part in this story a little differently from you guys, I guess, because he kind of seemed to me like he was just there as an assist. It didn't feel like he was the one approaching Gene with, with the affection. <laughs> Gene was the one initiating the kissing. Well, she's a minx. She's a minx, Kevo. So you're coming into this, the dark minx saga. How <laughs> did you feel about this story? You're mentioning the, the minx stuff. And I think the Black Queen was the thing I was least expecting from this story, all of the Harlequin romance. Part of me is like, is it a little bit reductive that he seduces her with this period piece romance? But then I'm like, nah, Outlander is popular as hell. Maybe it is a little embarrassing, but I'm not saying it doesn't or couldn't or didn't work. It's just weird. I don't think it's something someone would do in this kind of story now. I agree. A lot of the elements of this story that make it work so well are kind of the things that make Star Wars work so well that are so hard to replicate now. It was the 70s. Things could be melodramatic and operatic. Cocaine was still acceptable. And it led to some really interesting choices in storytelling. Today, we're going to be covering Uncanny 132 to 137, which are the final issues of the Dark Phoenix Saga. These issues by Chris Claremont and John Byrne were originally published from April of 1980 to September of 1980. So this is a really interesting, pivotal time in comics. Jonah, do you want to hit us with the summaries? 
Uncanny X-Men number 132 to 134. After the events of the first few issues, the X-Men go to Angel's Reserve where he brags about all his money. The X-Men hatch a plan, which basically involves walking into the Hellfire Club directly. The team is defeated and captured and Jean is successfully turned into the Black Queen. Scott tries to break Jean free with their psychic rapport, but is defeated by Jason in a fencing match in Scott's mind. This unknowingly breaks Jean free. Kind of. The police are called as well as the Avengers. Beast makes a choice and deletes any evidence of this and heads to the scene. The X-Men take down the Hellfire Club, but Jean isn't feeling right. That's because it's no longer Jean. She is the Dark Phoenix. The Dark Phoenix. The Dark Phoenix. Uncanny X-Men number 135 to 136. The Dark Phoenix, and not Jean, go on a rampage almost killing the X-Men. The team has no idea what to do, and Scott is in his perpetual sad boy state. Meanwhile, the Dark Phoenix, and not Jean, take to space where she absorbs a star and kills 5 million people. She also destroys a Shi'ar battleship, and Lalandra declares the Phoenix a galactic threat. Beast makes a mind scramble, and the team forms another plan. Dark Phoenix, and not Jean, goes to Jean's home, where they scare Jean's family. The X-Men plan almost works when maybe Jean, or maybe Dark Phoenix, is struggling for control. Scott just talks to Jean, and this almost works until Charles messes this up. But actually, Charles is the one to destroy the Dark Phoenix. When all is calm, the X-Men are transported away. Uncanny number 137. Jean is put on trial for her crimes as the Dark Phoenix, but the X-Men protest. Charles demands trial by combat, and everyone says, eh, sure, why not? The X-Men spend a day deciding who to support, and they all want to help Genie. Unfortunately, though, in the combat, the X-Men fall one by one by not even taking out a single Imperial Guard. Scott and Jean are on their last stand. When true to its name, the Phoenix rises again. But Jean counted on this and sacrifices herself for the greater good. She died a human. I just love this story so much. And I think there is no synopsis that can do this story justice. Growing up, I only had access to it as Uncanny 129 to 137. I had the trades. That's all you could get. You got the trades. And I couldn't know about the incredible buildup that led to Jean becoming the Phoenix and then ultimately the Dark Phoenix. The elements of her growth and development from Uncanny 125 make every page of this seem more powerful. Her battle against Magneto before the X-Men are divided and sent to the Savage Land while the other three, Xavier, Beast, and Jean, return home, forlorn that their friends are dead. Her power in that arc is legendary. And I just feel like this is the summation of so many things in such a beautiful way. And yet for people like Kyle and Kevo, who have only read bits and pieces, if they've read more than this, still get a full dynamic picture of Jean's struggle. There's such humanity in every page. And I think that is in great part due to John Byrne's expert visual storytelling, the unbelievable contrast of colors, and the clear, well-thought language put in by Chris Claremont. Jonah, the Uncanny X-Men is your baby, and this was the biggest change to the status quo since Giant Size X-Men number one. I knew what, what the ultimatum of what was going to happen. I knew Jean was going to die, but I didn't know how it was going to happen. I wasn't expecting that dialogue. I wasn't expecting the Watcher to make commentary on it. And talking about that Gene died a hero and saved the universe. It's that sort of heroic 
beautiful sense of tragedy that makes this story last as long as it has. Kyle, as somebody with a strong knowledge of the X-Men before this, and having read this era in part before, how did it feel jumping back into these characters? Did the emotion immediately come back? Oh, it definitely came back. Being able to see the characters realize the stakes that were at hand, you could could literally feel the pressure on them. I love that description. That's really, absolutely, there is a sense of pressure and urgency and tension building on every page. Keva, when you read Captain Britain, you read 10 issues by Chris Claremont that amounted to maybe... 80 pages. Here, you read something like 250 pages of consecutive storytelling. I know that in Captain Britain, it was specifically told as serialized storytelling. Here, the goal wasn't to tell a saga, but to tell the most compelling issue they could, month to month. Despite that very subtle difference, I feel like the story comes across differently. In some ways, yes. But I think he benefited here from these characters having existed for so long in Captain Britain that I read. It was the introduction of the character, so it was a lot of info dump, and that probably didn't help. There's a lot of similar themes and concepts in terms of how grand and cosmic the story is, though, for sure. And I do think that's an important thing to remember. The X-Men are so defined by these big epic themes i really like that description guys i don't think there's anywhere else to go but into the issues i have to say kyle i appreciate that you're like no i think gene kind of puts the smooch on angel because i'm looking back over it and gene does say you're looking good blondie and angel replies you're not so bad yourself red and we read from left to right and she's on the left so i guess to you she's like kissing first but I don't know. His hand is on her face. And I just feel like after that Spider-Man incident, it's just, there's just, everybody's kissing Jean a little too much. It's at least (laughs) 50-50 to me. It reads at least like 50-50 and that's still not quite chill on either of their parts. No, especially when they're both committed. I wouldn't say that they're both committed because Angel definitely seems a little hesitant with Candy there. And I don't know about anybody else, but I was reading a version of Uncanny where four issues ago, Scott just got the key to his new girlfriend's apartment. His new girlfriend who is best friends with Jean's roommate. We don't talk about Colleen, apparently. Colleen is never mentioned again. Colleen is basically never mentioned again. It is brutal. So I I do have some hesitance with they're committed because this is the X-Men and I kind of imagine that the X-Men is always like the Olympic Village. Everybody's always falling in love and falling in lust and, you know, touching each other on the no-no spot. So when I read this arc, one of the things that stands out early on, these scenes with angel in nevada and scott and gene establishing the psychic rapport there is this effort and emphasis on establishing the idea of the classic x-men again early on here we see a lot of echoes of the themes of the classic x-men we see beast return angel plays more than a passing role in the arc and gene even dons her marvel girl costume There's a lot of emphasis on all of the ways that this is a contrast with the X-Men's past, and I think that really helps strengthen the story. It gives us a notion of legacy. It gives us an idea of nostalgia. Even in this dark time, they remember their past. I agree. Rip Iceman, because he's nowhere to be seen. But they really do this seeding of the original X-Men. This is kind of who it's about. The newer X-Men, yeah, they're involved in all of this. But I felt like a lot of them took a backseat role and it was much more, in fairness, 
to be about Gene, Scott, and Warren and Beast playing much more important roles. I think one of the most amazing things that this arc is able to express is a number of complex relationships and friendships. I really feel like we start to see the relationship between Kurt and Logan that Claremont has been so desperate to convince us exists in classic. Them in the sewers really does give me a sense of that brotherhood, that camaraderie. And we frequently see the X-Men split off in groups in this arc. We see a lot of Warren with Xavier, and that makes sense. There's only so much that Warren can offer with those big fluffy wings in the Hellfire Club itself without giving away who he is. The establishing of emotional relationships is one of the things that serves this arc best. It's one of the things that makes Jean's betrayal as the Black Queen, all of the sick, horrifying things she does, whether it's to her friends uh, like Aurora in ways that are just unforgivable. I completely agree, but I do I do have to say this. God, I love her design so much as the Black Queen. I don't know what it is. It could be basic as hell. It's literally just a corset and panties and a cape. But it's everything to me. Ultimately, it is one of the most beloved designs of all time. I don't think I've ever seen a cosplay of it, though, in my memory. I could be mistaken. I could have just seen it and not made the connection. But I don't think I've ever seen it before. It's a daring costume, to be sure. And we will see variations on it throughout the X-Men. And that's exciting. Kyle, seeing Jean as... The Black Queen, and knowing what's coming with each darker iteration, having read this before, there's that creeping sense of dread as the X-Men attempt to take down the Hellfire Club, and the number of times this is echoed in later canon. Does the Hellfire Club stand up for you as one of the scarier big bads in retrospect? They do. It's not because of their power set, but more how they, how much connection they have to the world around them, their, the influence they have with so many other side characters and the fact that they keep tabs on the X-Men and the X-Men aren't aware of 100% the notion that Warhawk installed spyware on the X-Men's computer in an age before spyware existed <laughs> is terrifying I think one of the things this arc does very well is creates scenes and sections for us to identify it by I feel like we get the darkness that the X-Men face when Jean is the Black Queen, when she's in the corset. But there is no way we can talk about that section without the most iconic image of Wolverine, maybe ever. Wolverine in the sewers? Okay, suckers, you've taken your best shot. Now it's my turn. Logan just proves to be time and time again a, an amazing force to be reckoned with. And he's... I think this is where his stubbornness comes into play. He is so determined to not lose that he is pulling himself from the sewers. And it's something like it's almost awe-inspiring and almost incredible, his resilience and his determination to kill these people. Yes. And it's interesting that you said the word kill these people. It is very clear that Logan is killing Hellfire goons. Later on, it will be retconned that they didn't die, but held on within an inch of their life. And we will find out what happens to them later on. 
But yeah, Logan's on a murder mission. So Wolverine spends pages taking out the Hellfire goons. And I think one of the things that's most interesting is I don't get bored of it. At no point am I like, oh God, Wolverine's still at it. I completely accept it. Logan's a machine. And it's one of the first times that I reading these have liked Logan from the way that he held back against the guy who surrendered. The character that I loathe from Logan is a guy who would kill him anyway, but seeing him not do that here was pretty neat. And that's the Logan I know and the Logan I love. Seeing Claremont come into his iterations of these characters when he hits his stride is great. In fact, if there's any real weakness, this isn't my Sebastian Shaw quite yet. One of the things that's even, like, amazingly scary is what the Hellfire Club will do. They have Scott in that big metal helmet. That thing's scary as hell! That fucking freaky-ass Red Hood BDSM mask. Everyone has some form of a mask to prevent Scott from using his powers, and I think it's so hysterical because Scott is captured a lot, and everyone just has something so he can't use his powers. He is an incredibly powerful mutant. His abilities are even difficult to describe at times. Yes, he has his concussive optic blast, but he has an innate understanding of geometric refraction to utilize his optic beam. He sees in a way we can't, making his optic beam super deadly. It's Oh yeah, he's we've seen panels and pages where he's bounced it off different metals and objects to hit people, and he's really good at geometry and math. Speaking of STEM, let's hop over to my favorite woman in STEM in the X-Men universe. We get these two really incredible interludes. We get Moira and Sean. Sean getting like more dialogue on this one page than he gets in any seven issues of Uncanny X-Men. And we get Xavier and Warren. I actually really love what these two interludes represent and the growing discomfort that they represent. Kevo, I know you haven't had too much experience with these characters. So reading these pages, these super stylized, highly colorized pages, must have been a little bit jarring. Did they interrupt the narrative of the story for you? In some ways, yes, but also enhanced, especially because you had me read the three issues before these, so I was a little more familiar with the characters of Banshee and Moira, so I knew that these weren't just random folk. It was nice to see people starting to read the signs of the oncoming storm, and interesting to see how that would eventually feed into the story. Absolutely. It just bums me out that we don't see more of them, that we don't cut back to them at some point, because we do get some pretty phenomenal cameos in individual panels here and there. That must have been a big surprise for you to see, Jonah. Oh, yeah. We get the Fantastic Four. We get Doctor Strange. We get the Silver Surfer. And we get my boy Spidey. I actually thought the connection to the Silver Surfer was pretty interesting. They do a pretty good job of explaining why he felt a connection. And I know literally nothing about the Silver Surfer, but that gave me enough information to understand everything I needed to know. That's the goal of a strong, interconnected universe story. The ability to dial into an existing character that's not necessarily part of your narrative and make it feel organic. One of the most standout moments is the transition from Logan trying to spy on his captured comrades to Scott's psychic duel against Mastermind. I think these are some of the most fraught, tense 
incredibly well executed pages and i think there really is something incredible scott says i'm not a telepath i i'm only doing this because of my rapport with gene i do not have abilities it's so incredible because you're on this ride with him you're as confused as he is and you're trying to follow along if i have any complaint it is the very disappointing oh god cyclops is dead no he's not accepting that i agree that was a a weird fake out that i don't think was necessary you don't need to have him die but you also maybe didn't need to make it seem like he did if he just wasn't going to anyway it was a case of needing to buy an act break where there really wasn't one but these act breaks do have a very important factor one of the most incredible things that the x-men offers especially at this point are their unforgettable covers each one of these covers tells you the same volume as the interior does. Gene's descent into madness is executed with gorgeous intensity. Specifically, the cover of 134, in many ways, mirrors the cover of 100, where Xavier pitted the new X-Men against the old X-Men robots. That issue led to Gene becoming the Phoenix. Here we have Gene standing in Xavier's place as the X-Men face down the Hellfire Club. The parallels between now and then continue to come up for the X-Men. The idea that this is a changing period and a new time for the X-Men is central to this story's success. Kevo, I know that you had some less than stellar art. Kyle, you had some weird art, and we're going to talk in a second. But Kevo, what was it to see all of these scary-eyed gene images? Mm, Yeah, they were super cool. You cringed when I compared art like this to Archie comics, but those are the comics that I grew up reading. So like this pulpier style, that's my point of reference for it with how sometimes dated the art style is. It's a lot of really dynamic images, a lot of really compelling stuff. Kyle, I know we touched on the fact that John Byrne had been a penciler on the Champions last episode, but here it's almost impossible to avoid discussing it. This is the guy that penciled Champions 11 to 16. This is the guy that did the Swarm Issues. Don't remind me. So what was it like seeing the same artist doing a totally different thing? Something that you're blown away by? It's I I'm having a really hard time uh, just convincing myself that it's the same artist. This it's like leagues beyond champions. This the detail, the emotion. It's it's just like absolutely uncomparable. I agree. It really highlights the power of uniting a great writer and a great artist that make a great team as opposed to just putting two great talents together. It also was interesting that Claremont got permission to take Beast and, I don't know, effectively have a page where he sort of turns on the Avengers. That felt really interesting. Kyle, Jonah, I know we discussed those Beast issues together. Did this feel in line with the Hank McCoy we've been following? Because I felt, it felt to me, like there had to be some development between when we last saw him and here. I think I agree. There's something a little bit off about Beast very willingly right away to abandon the Avengers for the X-Men. Not that I don't think he would not have done it ultimately, because I think deep down Hank misses his family. But the way he goes about it, he seemed a little too ready. And that's not how we last 
saw Beast. That's not how we've seen Beast. Beast has been very happy to be an Avenger and literally tells the X-Men, no, I can't come. I can't help you. I'm an Avenger. I'm not an X-Men. So it was just a, a weird shift that they didn't have an explanation yet. I agree. Kyle, you're the guy that's going to be covering the Beast on X-Factor through his many furry adventures. Was this the Beast you know, the guy who would drop everything for the X-Men at a moment's notice? Honestly, I don't think that I can say that it is. I agree. I think he's a character that takes a long time to come into his own, to come into that personality. One of the most dynamic turns in the story is when Jean is temporarily able to get control of herself back, set Cyclops free, give Logan the upper hand, and take on Mastermind. Her attack on his mind, sending his brain soaring through the greatness of the cosmos, which she's able to handle like it's nothing because, you know, she's crazy, breaks his mind. And that is a dynamic end to a character that has been plaguing this book for something like 16 issues in the background, skulking in the shadow. Jonah, you've been following Jason Wingard into his return as Mastermind for something like a year's worth of storytelling. Did this feel like a fitting end for you? Absolutely. Jason has been planning this for very long. It's been a lot of issues. We've actually seen his plans in classics. So this, him wanting to take over the Hellfire Club and using Jean as his Black Queen was really something that has been seeded and it's been something we've been culminating leading up to for a very long time. And Jean sending him through this psychedelic event where he had his mind basically break because he's never going to feel that euphoria that fondness for going through the universe again i think it's so fitting i thought it was so deserved justice was served against a villain who is really going to kind of start the real dark phoenix where and i thought it was just like nope this is right i don't i don't feel bad for jason and i think you're on to something when you say this is the start of the dark Phoenix. I think pushing Jason and getting that revenge is what finally totally unlocked that door. We get this unbelievable consecutive series of pages that that final page of issue 134 where she becomes the Dark Phoenix, then that cover of 135 and that first page that says Dark Phoenix as she blows up the ship. That iconography is incredible and definitive and unbelievable. Jean then dispatches the X-Men like they're nothing. And those crazy eyes never go away. They don't ever go away. Before you know it, Jean's rocketing off into space and this becomes a cosmic story. It's almost too fast. Jonah, Kyle, Kevo, tell me, Jean transforms into the Dark Phoenix. Where are you at in the story? We have been told about the Phoenix being one of the most powerful entities ever in the Marvel Universe. And it's now turned evil and while i was reading this i was like okay everyone's dead everyone everyone is going to die no one's going to live just marvel's going to literally set the start everything over from scratch and alternate universes nobody's going to survive because i don't think anybody or anything in the marvel universe compared to the level of power of the dark phoenix and when something that they kept saying in the writing and i think was so great by claremont is that they kept hammering that gene's not home right now it's the dark phoenix and the Dark Phoenix has zero mercy for anything. She has no remorse. She has no empathy. She has no emotions. 
other than wanting to siphon power from everything. And I'm, I was just genuinely scared for what was going to happen. Kyle, how did you feel reading the story again at the moment where Jean, the woman who was the, the ex-woman for so long, turned into the ex-villain of all time? I felt I felt it exhilarating. I felt it heartbreaking. And I was terrified. I mean, looking just looking at the way that she drawn, it's hard to say how scary they could turn this woman who we've come to love through 130 some odd issue. Yeah, this is the same woman who in her first ever solo story talked about how much she loves cleaning up after the boys. Uh, yeah, it's super gross. Something that's really weird and interesting to me, though, is how even in the middle of all of this stuff, Claremont is having a little side scene where we learn more about Senator Kelly, and that's a character that I recognize from my childhood in the first X-Men movie from the late 90s. And, you know, Nico asked me earlier in the episode, comparing this to Captain Britain, I know so many of the things that I was introduced to in early Captain Britain are never brought up again. And so many things in this arc alone are iconic things. Kitty, Hellfire Club, Emma, Shaw, Dazzler, all of these things are going on in the middle of an already overpoweringly mythic story. Where did he find the time? How did he find the room to do all of this stuff on top of itself? And, you know, the art is breathtaking. That opening title shot, The Dark Phoenix, uh, amazing. It's it's really an amazing story all around. So we're reaching a moment that ultimately changed the f- shape of Marvel forever. While we're not going to talk about it too much here, the editor-in-chief of Marvel at the time was unaware of Claremont's plans to have Gene devour the son of the Dabari galaxy, ultimately ending the life of millions of aliens. This is a transformative point in the history of Marvel Comics, and the art is incredible. I find the use of the Shi'ar, who are so severe, to be an incredibly smart decision. They look kind of like Zygons from Doctor Who. I know those aren't like reptile suckers, it's feathers, but the shape of their heads, the way it looks like a a guitar pick, is very Zygon to me, and I can't help that. But it's great art. I'm not trying to take that away from it. It's just what I keep seeing in my head. Also, the people from the Dabari system look kind of like the things from the Cat in the Hat franchise. So I keep thinking about poor little thing one through five billion. (laughs) (laughs) Oh... So Jonah, you've been following Jean Grey for the last several years. You've been following her for five years of storytelling, and now you've watched her kill five million people. Is this the same Jean Grey that you've known? I almost want to say it's a shame that they did catch on to what Claremont was doing, because the Dark Phoenix kills five million people like it's nothing. Literally, like it's nothing, and it's just... I am speechless. I, I can't... I can't even think of the words... To describe this jarring, almost juxtaposition of who Jean was and what we were setting up Jean to be. And it almost felt like Jean was going to be the most powerful superhero we ever got. And she was just going to do so much good. And it was just like one switch. No, actually, I can't even say that because this this has been set up for so long that Jean has been off and so- something is not right with her and her personality is changing but to see the switch going immediately from something's off jean's not really acting like herself she's using her powers in ways that she's never done before and she's had ethical issues with too 
literally killing almost the entire population of Earth. It's just like, holy shit. Kyle, it's quite a contrast to the adventures we've got going on over in Champions, isn't it? Very, very different. The stakes are just so much higher. It almost makes you wonder what the Champions were fighting for. They were fighting for themselves. Absolutely night and day to see the story that Angel was in and see where he's shown up to now. Once Gene has declared basically war on all of space, we get that front page of 136. We get Gene as the phoenix devouring the sun, the child of light and darkness. And it's an image that stayed with me my entire life. This sense of beautiful tragedy and precious nightmare. It's such a definitive moment in... How I understand fiction, Jean Grey was the epitome of everything I thought was cool. She didn't mind that she was different than the others, and I loved that. And she became something so much more, and then she couldn't control it. And it's just such an incredible statement. And I love going on this journey with her every time, even though I know it's not going to change, and it's always going to end in heartbreak. This is the point in a very Shakespearean way, where we know the conclusion. Once Lalandra says the Shi'ar have declared war on the Phoenix, it, once if you've been reading Uncanny, you know there's no chance they can take down the Imperial Guard. There's just no shot in hell. And it is a scary moment. Jonah, as the guy reading the Imperial Guard most recently, did you have this feeling in the pit of your stomach like, nope, it's over? Yeah, we don't see much of it. But Lalandra has control and is empress of such a vast empire and she has large and powerful allies who will we will see in 137 you know something is going to happen there isn't going back from this there isn't oh well we can forgive this no the largest galactic empire declared gene a threat and they have to eradicate it they can't take any chances too many lives are at stake and then you have, they can't even think of the morality of the one versus many. It ha- For them, it has to be the many. And that ultimately becomes the argument. The X-Men are always fighting for the one. I do think it's sort of ridiculous that they take a couple of minutes to have a, a quick training montage. I, I maybe think that's one of the dumbest things. I want to talk about the Jimmy Carter cameo instead. Carter, you are a martyr and you are much smarter than other Carters. You know what, Jimmy Carter? You can go fuck yourself. It is a specific dating piece for sure. Kyle, you hadn't seen the X-Men have a training montage in a while, I guess. Did you feel this training montage was super necessary to the story? Um, oh jeez. I don't know. It kind of felt more like they were trying to burn off steam while they were waiting for Beast to do his thing. Maybe they could have done something a little more destructive, but yeah. But that out-of-place sequence gives way to what is probably my favorite scene in the entire Dark Phoenix saga. When Jean goes home, I don't feel like there's a single wasted moment. I don't think there's a line out of place. I think everything about Jean's time in her childhood home, seeing her parents and Sarah, chills me to the bone. And I think the ensuing battle is one of the X-Men's darkest moments. This is the tension, atmosphere, darkness, and pain that everyone's always trying to capture when they adapt the Dark Phoenix saga. But the mistake they make is they don't have years of developing Jean with the Phoenix and without the Phoenix to rely on. Jonah, this is probably the most tense moment 
you've come to in X-Men, except for maybe Gene and Magneto's fight. Absolutely. Where was your head with Gene's family? I think what I originally thought was that the Dark Phoenix was going to kill Gene's family. And that would have been a very dark turn that I don't think when this was printed comic books was ready for but it was such an interesting moment to see Jean almost come back and take over but her inability to control her powers is kind of what sets her off again because she just sees her parents and her sister fear her and no matter what they say she knows the truth it was very scary because it you don't know what's going to happen because Jean is so unstable and so unpredictable that Almost anything can happen. Unstable and unpredictable are definitely words that define the emotional atmosphere of this arc. Kyle, I think Jean's parents' involvement, despite how great this scene is, is something that could slip your mind. Was this one of the scenes that you remembered coming back into this? So seeing the events of this particular scene, uh, I was thrown off. I wasn't expecting this at all. And I think it's one of those moments that reminds us of the humanity that Jean is losing and that's why it grips us that's why it fucks us up so well and the next fight against the x-men is just visceral kevo you've had so little experience with gene and the majority of what you've had are images like her when she rips off the psi inhibitor and looks truly unhinged yeah, you know, most of my experience with Jean Grey is the animated series or the film franchises. I think part of why people have had such a hard time adapting the Dark Phoenix saga is I don't think, personally, any actor who has been chosen to portray Jean Grey thus far has had the strength to portray the character of Dark Phoenix. They've tended to go for actors that are a little bit more willowy, and I mean that both in terms of, you know, know the phrase and kind of the character because there's a lot of the phoenix story in willow rosenberg and dark willow but i think if you're trying to portray gene as this frail diminutive character before she becomes the phoenix you need a character that can equally swing hard and the phoenix is fierce and scary she looks like a wild animal in some of these panels and a lot of times instead the dark phoenix is portrayed as this slow crawling death and that's not what she is it's not and that's what famke jansen's was and that's what we've seen of sophie turner so far and it's not who this phoenix is for sure the phoenix is passion the phoenix is raw emotion the phoenix is also ridiculous and turns trees into gold that's a decision she made i love it i'm in i like nightcrawler's comment on that that it would could solve new york's financial crisis <laughs> but that does bring us to one of the most unbelievable moments in the entire book which is xavier versus gene this was a payoff that we've kind of been waiting for for a really really long time jonah we finally got something that we kind of expected all along where how did you feel it was really one of the most epic fights in the entire issue we talk about a lot how the claremazons are so powerful and that gene as the phoenix is one of the most powerful mutants we've ever seen but we don't often talk about how powerful charles really is charles really likes to hold back a lot and he doesn't always participate in things he's more trying to get everyone to do 
their best without him having to intervene. But Charles is one of probably the most scariest mutants as well. And to see him go toe-to-toe with the Phoenix and win, just barely, but he still wins and makes it out on top, is absolutely incredible. And I will say... As much as I, the problems that I've had with Charles, I think Claremont did pretty well in these issues of making me like Charles and seeing the struggles that Charles goes through as the founder of the X-Men and him having such a bond with his students and his team, the pain that he himself is going through. I think it's pretty incredible and I really wasn't expecting it. And I think John Byrne does an amazing job of depicting what's going on in very, in not a lot of pencils. I agree. He can do a lot with very little. The Phoenix battle against Xavier is one of the most moving things. I agree. I think it's really beautiful and powerful, but I don't really side with Charles. And I kind of was like, ooh, what are you doing button in here? Nobody asked you. I I find his story arc here compelling but to compare it again to willow from buffy and an obvious parallel between the battle between her and giles in season six i side more with giles in that story than i do with charles and most of what he's been doing here i feel like charles is mostly just kind of snippy because these aren't his x-men doing what he wants and i don't really get the sense that he actually thinks that anything they're doing isn't like good he's not it's it's more it's just not exactly the way that he would do it and he doesn't really feel like he fits in and it's still a great battle between mentor and student and those are always really amazing but i you know i wasn't exactly rooting for him except in that i we needed phoenix to be taken down so kyle you're the only one who hasn't weighed in on chuck Hmm. He just kind of felt out of place here. Everybody is is worked so hard to try to to stop Gene, and then all of a sudden he just shows up and starts battle with her. And I mean, yeah, he it it definitely the art definitely shows that he's feeling that connection with her. He's feeling upset that he's led her to this point in her life um but at the same time it's he's it just seems like such a weird end to to the battle did you feel there was an x-man that made a compelling argument would be able to take down gene i feel like storm really probably could have done a little better than they show her to do i have a a few issues with storm not using her powers not really kind of acting like herself in these past few issues like she kicks Shaw in 132, I think it is. And it's like, Storm, no, you're so powerful. I know you don't want to hurt people, but when you're fighting mutants, they can take a little more than you're willing to dish out. And can I also say that I was really thrown off by Logan's hesitation to finish the job? You know, I love that he can't ever forgive himself for that hesitation. I love that you picked up on that moment. Talk to me about it. It it was, for me, it was a big contrast between the way he was acting the Hellfire Club and now. I mean, before he was doing anything he had to take in order to save the rest of the X-Men. Whereas this, he has Gene at his 
mercy and he doesn't do it he could have stopped everything by just taking her out and can't do it and i feel like this is more of that misplaced that that weird not misplaced um i feel like it was more of that relationship that they were trying to push between him and and gene when obviously gene and scott were a night that's an interesting read one of the things that claremont has always felt is that gene and xavier's relationship is equally definitive of the series he very much believes that relationship between student and mentor is as definitive of a person as their romantic relationships, and that is all over his books. Especially when you think about Logan and his unending stream of protégés. One of the things that we keep talking about throughout the Dark Phoenix saga is how unforgettable the imagery is and how famous all of the art is. There are so many consecutive famous images, it's hard to imagine. I think the cover to 137, that fronts piece, the splash page of The Watcher, and then that double splash spread, The Fate of the Phoenix, with the complete X-Men. We have Scott, Jean, Warren, Hank, Kurt, Logan, Aurora, Pete, and Xavier. And it's so complex because... Xavier is standing near Lalandra and Gladiator and Araki, and as strange as it is to perhaps Kevo, who hasn't been reading regularly for five years, even Araki is a character that Jonah and I have come to think highly of. And Gladiator is one of the greatest heroes in the universe. There are no bad guys standing here, except maybe Jean, who they have worked so hard to convince us is a victim and a passenger. So, Jonah, when we started this whole thing with Giant Size X-Men number one, we had a whole lot more X-Men and a whole lot less X-Men, and a lot of them have come and gone. But standing looking at this team right now, the fate of the Phoenix, what was running through your head reading this for the first time? I think I had some pretty interesting thoughts and notions of where this is going to go. Because at this point, I I really did wasn't expecting anything to happen. I was like, okay, I know in 135, 136, we got Lalandra declaring that the Phoenix needs to die. But that didn't happen in those issues. So I was like, okay, what's going on? But to see them transported immediately after what they think is resolving the issue and to be put on this situation again is pretty jarring. And it's pretty like, oh, okay, nope, we're doing this now. And they go through this trial and we see the struggles of all of the X-Men when they find out what Jean did as the Dark Phoenix. And everyone kind of has a moment of, we don't know what to do. We don't know who to support right now. We don't want Jean to die, but Jean was a villain. It's really a really, really interesting moral and ethical debate of when it's not someone close to you, it's very easy to see someone who's doing evil. But when it's someone you care about so much, you're kind of like, you don't want to believe it and you want you don't know how to feel. And I really got that from this issue of everyone not knowing how to feel and not knowing what to do or whose side they want to be on. Ultimately, that is the question. Even though Xavier offers all of the X-Men for this great battle that I guess, you know, they're in for it. They're X-Men. This is what they do. They defend their family. But it was important for them each to come to the decision to come to Jean's aid on their own. If I have any sort of regret about any of the setup leading to the great battle, it's that Jean doesn't get particularly much internal dialogue before they head out to the blue side of the moon for the great battle my issue with that is just this is gene's 
swan song and that kind of breaks my heart it is important to me to note that before the great battle Lalandra sheds a tear because Lalandra loves these people they are her family as much as her own people are but she has to do the right thing by the universe Lalandra read incredibly sympathetic to me this read through Jonah you've established the same 20 issue relationship with Lalandra. was it hard watching her turn her back on Charles it, it it's really upsetting and you feel for both of these characters because Lalandra is madly in love with Charles she she and Charles had this connection to one another before they physically met and they fell in love madly and, and they're so interesting together but Lalandra goes through one of probably the hardest decisions a character can ever go through in that she had to choose the greater good which is the many she has a lot of people under her empire and she can't let this go by she has a duty and she has to uphold it because what kind of empress would she look like if she pardoned someone who destroyed five billion of her people it's you feel bad for Lalandra because she doesn't want the phoenix to exist but she also wants the x-men to win she's very complex and very nuanced and i I think just written beautifully kyle we hadn't spent any time in space in the champions had no not at all did the cosmic backdrop create a greater sense of dire urgency? I think so. I mean, you could probably get the same kind of urgency on Earth, but I think moving it into space, involving all of these other civilizations, it really helped to expand that level. I think the thing that gets me the most about this part of 137 is it is futile from the start. Absolutely none of our X-Men can even stand a chance against the Imperial Guard. It is hopeless, and that's even the point. Jean knows there is no choice, and you even can believe for a moment that she does have the Phoenix in check. You want to believe she has the Phoenix in check, and we see her in battle, and she's doing fine, and then she loses it. It's so incredible that when we cut back, she's already lost control, and everybody just has to deal with the fact that it's too late there is no saving her you can see it in everybody's face in every panel they are all in extraordinary pain they can't believe that gene is gone again and it is a really tragic end to a really beautiful character her last word being scott and the last thing she hears being scott screaming out for her it rips me apart and i think all of the moments punctuated by the watcher make it feel so much more epic and so much more powerful i feel like Every time I look at the outline of Jean, because that's all she is when she kills herself, she's just an outline. And in the panel before that, she's just a face ensconced in darkness. And in the panel before that, she's just red. Jean becomes nothing but her colors for her final three panels. She's red, black, and yellow white. She's become nothing more than the Phoenix in this aesthetic way. And it's such a hard goodbye for me to this character I love so much. Kevo, I know that Jean, for you, just started at 129 and the journey to the Phoenix is something you just began. But did you find yourself compelled by Jean by the end? 
I did. Her, her story, all of it. You know, I see why so many creators I love were completely inspired by Jean Grey and Phoenix and her story. I don't personally love large elements of this conclusion. I appreciate the emotional core of this battle being futile, but then I, as a story reader, sort of feel like then this was a lot of stuff for me to have to read for it ultimately to have an ending that could have been done much earlier. I also think, you know, in 1980, it was very powerful for Jean to kill herself. I think if this story was done now, someone would have been forced to kill her. This wouldn't have been a choice. She would have made someone do it. I don't know whether that's better or worse. I just think it's an interesting note, and I wonder if that would be the case if the Phoenix hadn't done this back in the day. But I don't think it would have been as self-sacrificing. I think they would have used it to further someone else's story now, which, you know, what a way to use a powerful woman's death, right? (sighs) Well, then I am very glad, even more so than ever before, with that nightmarish days of feminism past that you just pitched me that this took place when it took place kyle we got through 30 issues of the champions and the most significant thing that happened was dark star didn't really get injured i'm not even sure here though you witnessed one of the most unbelievable great moments in the marvel universe the shift in tone you've read claremont you read burn these are people who worked on the champions but once again here it's a completely different story you read beast you read angel both again in the champions how was this story different other than obviously it was x-men whereas champions felt like a cheesy uh, like 60s sci-fi movie this felt like a very well thought out drama like a very high quality soap opera and i think it's that soap opera element that is part of that serialization that always made comics seem a little maybe silly to the average reader but a talented writer with a talented artist can do so much to create such a dynamic inspiring story that transcends genre and trapping jonah this experiment started because you wanted to know more about one fuzzy elf and here you are witnessing the end of a woman's life this has been such an incredible read through and i can't wait to read the kitty pride arrow with you but first we need to say goodbye to gene what did saying goodbye to marvel girl at the end of uncanny 137 mean to you you know i wasn't expecting to love gene as much as i did gene was a character that did get a lot of special treatment and that does sometimes deter people away from a character is when there's so much heavy favoritism but i think gene dying is what's going to pave the way for the characterization of everybody else because they don't have a powerhouse anymore characterization wise and mutant power wise so you can leave room for growth for everybody else and you can now play with different dynamics more you can give us that logan nightcrawler friendship that claremont has insinuating is there but now with gene gone you have the time to do that and we're going to have the introduction of kitty pride who's this 13 year old girl who I don't know anything about yet, but I'm so excited to see what happens with her and how the X-Men are going to interact with her because they haven't, they, they're they no longer going to be the new X-Men. They have a new teammate now, and that's going to be a weird shift in dynamic for them. And I would love to see what that means for them as characters, what that meant for Claremont as a writer of where he now has to go with his stories. So it's really sad to see Jean go, and I am going to miss her, but I think 
It's almost good in a way that she did die. It changed comics forever, and the legacy of Jean's death is pretty much the inspiration for X-Men Classic, as well as a number of other special stories. Jonah and I will be covering the Dark Phoenix Apocrypha, as well as Uncanny 138, in our next issue. After that, Kevo and I are going to be taking the Phoenix Force over to HTML, where we're going to be covering all of the animated and live-actions interpretations of the story. Kyle and I are going to keep following the adventure of the original X-Men that turned champions in New Defenders, as well as Dazzler in her solo series Dazzler. But until then, Kevo, Jonah, Kyle, I want to thank you guys for coming out and reading along with me one of my all-time favorite stories by one of my all-time favorite creative teams. It is such an important story, and it makes me so happy to discuss it. You're welcome. Thank you for having us on this journey. I know this was something so special to you, and it's meant so something so much to you since your childhood. So it's great going through this again with you and seeing your different reactions or the same reactions you've had to this. It's been really great being able to hear about how your interpretations of the stories have differed from my interpretations as well. So it's it's really opened up my eyes to this universe yeah and you guys for me as well kevo until we cover the phoenix over on html or we take another look at the mcu where can everybody find you you can find me on twitter and instagram at kevo really k-e-v-o-r-e-a-l-l-y or you can find me sharing random crap on the facebook page for html look us up on facebook at husbands talking more or less you can also check out our awesome X-Men-inspired comic book, Kid Riot, over at KidRiotComics.com, where we have diverse, inclusive storytelling for you guys every month. Kyle, I'm so glad you were able to be a part of this epic crossover. Until the Champions, Defenders, Dazzler, whatever we want to call them, come across our funny books again, where can everybody find you? You guys can find me at both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. And as for you, my fuzzy elf co-host, Jonah, where can everybody follow your adventures? If you would like to follow me on my adventures and reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino, respectively. Nico, if people want to find you in all of your Phoenix ways, where can they find you? You can find me burning away what doesn't work over on Now and Again and HTML with Chris, my childhood best friend, and Kevo, my husband, respectively, where I cover music and movies. Of course, there's all the other amazing episodes of Exes for Podcasts with these awesome co-hosts of mine. Don't forget to check out the Patreon for the network and contribute and help shape the direction of the next show that they cover. Don't forget you can look me up on Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. All right, until we cover the Dark Phoenix Apocrypha, we'll see you guys. Bye. See ya. Bye-bye.